0: Endings are always such a poignant time. On the one hand, it's always amazing that what seemed like far, something far away is now upon us. And it's amazing that great diversity of feelings we can have at these times. It's important to remember that it's quite natural for a lot of different feelings. And one of the expressions of anatta, the impersonal nature, is that our feelings don't have to be consistent. We can very clearly be feeling grief at the coming ending of the retreat and great anticipation, can't wait to be freed, to escape. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really amazing, isn't it? We could be completely uh like wanting it to go on for another couple of weeks and find it, finding it in another moment torturous, to be here even another minute or second. It really teaches us something about the mind, that it isn't one thing. There are these many, many, many patterns that can be uh, triggered or um, brought to life according to what is presenting itself. And then if we identify with that pattern, it seems like it's me who's having that experience. And then we have to tell ourselves a story why things are changing. You know, oh, I've changed my mind. I do want to go home. Oh, I've changed my mind again. I want to stay. Change my mind again. I want to go home, but I want to bring everybody with me. <laughs> I never want to see these people again. I am so tired. Of- <laughs> And you know, it seems, we see why it's so stressful to have a sense of self because the uh, kind of di- inner dialogue, inner commentary, has to make the inconsistency make sense—at least some semblance of sense—because we won't put up with nonsense. That you know, we we want our internal wor- world to sort of seem reasonable, like a sane person's internal world would be. But it's not that way. It's this way, then it's that way. There's a great poem about somebody dying. I forget who wrote it now. Wish I could remember. But it's this, uh, it's written in the style where the person says, sometimes it was like this. There's a person describing the death of a partner or a good friend. Sometimes it was like this, and sometimes it was like this. You know, sometimes you were sick all night, vomiting. Sometimes we laughed and laughed and laughed. Sometimes it was, sometimes you ate this, sometimes you ate persimmons. That's one of the lines. And it just goes on and on like that. And just showing that we can't pigeonhole the dying process. And we can't pigeonhole anything. And we can't pigeonhole the ending of a retreat. That was a great retreat. Actually, no, it was hellish. It was a hellish retreat. That's what it was. It was a hellish retreat. No, no, actually, (laughs) I just was sitting on the lake. I mean, it was really nice, very peaceful, until I created some things to make it less peaceful, and then peaceful again. You know, and everything under the sun. So we want to accept that this is how it is, and it's like don't judge yourself if you're experiencing a little bit of everything under the sun these last 16 hours that we have together on retreat. And we don't have to struggle to get back somewhere that we imagined we were, you know, a day ago, two days ago, that imaginary place where everything was just right, (laughs) because now it's not. So, But instead we'll learn, why not learn how to practice with this kind of state. And this is such a great place for practice because it will occur to us to want things to be other than they are. But then if we remember the practice, we we remember, well, the practice isn't about making things other than they are. It's about connecting with the way it is. Oh yeah, but this isn't acceptable. And then that should hopefully stand out. Wait a minute. (laughs) It's not about the way it is. It's about connecting. It's about understanding that it is like this now. That continuity of awareness is not a controlling mechanism. It doesn't have an agenda for what it's knowing. It just has this intention to know. To know this is how it is. This is being known. It's like this now. And to know, to connect as much as possible with wisdom. This is just a natural unfolding process here. Of course, of course, it feels personal. Because taking things personally is part of, is one of those natural processes that's at play, to take it personally. So, of course, this... Seems personal, this unfolding feels personal. <coughs> so the practice, you know, we think, oh I'm doing retreat practice and now I've gotta amp up my daily life practice, but really, it's the same practice. There will be sometimes during the day, maybe during your formal set, maybe at other times, when the conditions will be suitable and hopefully, perhaps, the mind will be in the mood for seclusion. And so you just follow those dharma instincts, whether you're taking a walk with your dog or sitting in your meditation period or whatever it might be, sitting out in the backyard, and you just allow your mind to withdraw And you might, of course, use some neutral experience to help that retreating, that seclusion. Or you might have enough momentum where the mind can attune to the feeling or the experience of inner peace itself, stillness or silence itself, and use that to seclude itself. Just like we do on retreat, we can do that at home. There are more distractions at home, but the basic movement of practice doesn't change at all. And a lot of what's in the way is the thought, it's too distracting now. That's what's distracting, that thought. Thinking that samadhi isn't available is what's in the way of samadhi thinking it's far away when I was on a nine-day retreat. But the truth is, a lot of the nine-day retreat, there wasn't samadhi here either. Because we had all kinds of thoughts, like uh, either the samadhi was there, but we just are in the habit of thinking it's not there. That's not uncommon. So it's like we can't notice the stillness because it doesn't fit our idea of being somebody who doesn't have much samadhi. So we don't notice the quiet, the stillness, the sense of space or silence in the mind. We just notice everything but that, which then confirms the established view in the mind. i got to really work at samadhi. Someday I'll work at samadhi. But you can't have been on retreat for nine days, hanging in there without... The development of a significant degree of samadhi beyond what you normally experience in daily life. But you know how our mind is, it's always kind of fooled by the status quo. So this is like the new normal. So it doesn't seem, seems, you know, like normally distracted. So this is another reason why transitions are nice. You go back in the world and you realize What a lower gear you're at than everybody else, you know, and just how sensitive, like our skin has been filled back, raw, exposed, finding it hard to be in conversations with people for any length of time. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's good to go back with some strategies. So when somebody asks you how your retreat was, don't tell them everything. <laughs> Just say something, be ready to say something like, great.
1: No, I'm not, I'm not kidding.
0: Or, or if it feels like they deserve a little bit more, I really learned a lot about my mind. So you don't want to lie, of course, but, the thing is, most people, most of the people we interact with, they just want to know we're okay. You know, that we didn't go off the deep end or <laughs> it wasn't a, some weird thing. So just to help them feel okay, you give them an answer. It's an act of kindness. And it's, there's some truth to it. Don't, you know, don't say something that's not truthful. But don't assume they actually want to know because it's not only It can be confusing to them, but it can even be more disturbing to you. Because if you just launch in to the most subtle, deepest experience you've ever had, very refined, that you don't even really understand, and you launch into a description of what happened, and then somebody who you really care about, who you really respect, says, Oh, okay. (laughs) You can have, that can cause a crisis. Like (coughs) I was saying to somebody in one of the small groups, like, did that really happen? I mean, really, doubt can arise in your mind, especially when you're out of this context of the retreat. The whole thing seems like, was I just on a retreat? I mean, it feels like a different universe. So you have to, you really do want to be careful. I'm not, you know, it is funny, I know, but, but it's really true. You know, in the tradition uh, like when people would come to the Buddha, and I think just I guess it was cultural at the time, you didn't really have to respond to somebody's request unless they ask three times, ask three times. is this like uh, culturally in India yeah so and then uh, and then. If they do, like, so you get a sense, this person really wants to know. It's not a superficial, how are you doing, how was your retreat? They really want to know, and then still, you don't necessarily answer, but you might find a particular time and place that's okay for you, okay for them, when you might start to share a little bit. But even then, you want to be just off for a little. Because you know how it is, You, you open the floodgates and it's hard to stop, because once, like like I said, it's sort of a different space, different reality, but once you put yourself back there, then a lot of ideas and memory will come back from the retreat, and you just want to keep going. And it might be okay in one out of about 200 interactions. So it's a pretty rare event that the person is really there who can meet where you're coming from. and. Can help you hold what you're sharing and also benefit from what you're sharing. But not often the case. It's also a good incentive to cultivate friends who are as interested in the practice as you are so that you can have these conversations. Because it, we're drawn to them in the same way we're drawn to reflect on our own insights because it can be useful. You know, it can also be just a lot of proliferation. But in the right context, reflecting on insights could be useful. And doing it with other friends who understand the practice makes it useful too. That's another way to reflect on it, Dharma conversations. This is also part of the tradition, you know, that although the nuns and the monks would often be alone much of the day, they would often walk into town to get their food in the morning at first light, come back, take care of stuff around their uh, communal area, take care of duties, responsibilities, sit down, maybe share their food amongst themselves, eat, clean up, and then often have a Dharma discussion because they're all together, check in about things, community matters, and then go back to their huts or their camping spots, which would be in the general vicinity so they could... Connect with each other if needed, if there's an emergency, but far enough away that they felt secluded until the next morning. They might gather late in the afternoon. I, nowadays, at least they do and might have tea, you know, at five or something like that, but I'm not sure they did that back in the time of the Buddha. But there might be that, a gathering in the evening where one of the senior people like the Buddha might give a talk. So it's nice to think about these retreats as, uh, you know, three retreats. This is from Deborah Ratner, one of the people I taught with at IMS. She had this funny line. She said, three, tre- three retreats for the price of one. Three places for learning. There's the pre-retreat retreat where we sign up, you know, push that button when we have registered online. And then what happens to the mind? and watching the mind, all the expectations. This one is really going to do it. I've never done a longer retreat. This one will put me over the top. (laughs) Or whatever. I don't know why I did that. I must be an idiot. Um, I'm sure something will come up between now and the beginning of the retreat that will give me a good excuse to cancel my registration. Some of you know people do that. Some of you were in the 30s on the waiting list. It's not so much people who signed up for the retreat cancel, although that happens a lot, that a lot of people on the waiting list disappear. So it's that uh, interesting drama, place to watch the mind in the weeks before the retreat. And then there's the retreat retreat, being on retreat retreat, and all the innumerable ups and downs, all the cycles we went through. It's not really one thing, this retreat. And starting tomorrow at noon, the post-retreat retreat, retreat, which in some ways is the most interesting and sometimes painful and beautiful, both, part of the retreat. You know, in some ways, when we leave retreat, there is that window of hours to weeks where we see very clearly the effect of the retreat that we don't necessarily see when we're on retreat. Like, why is it that everything appears to be richer, leaving the retreat. Colors are richer, people seem more beautiful, everything seems more real, and we're not doing drugs. (laughs) So it's it's like, oh, I wonder, I mean, we know, is there a connection between what I've been doing the last nine days and this pretty dramatic shift in how I'm experiencing the world? everything moves to heart. Little things. You might find yourself crying for reasons you wouldn't otherwise, wouldn't kind of faze you. It's important to remember that it's okay to feel happy when you leave, like you might not trust it. I think... Part of the reason we don't trust it is we've seen it go away, but that's okay, right? It's okay to be happy knowing that it will probably change. In a way, it makes it all the more precious, the fact that it's here, it has its own causes and conditions. Those supporting causes and conditions will fade over time. But it it reminds us of what's possible, just that happiness for no good reason that lightness for no good reason. It can be a little overwhelming after the closing circle and we go upstairs and have lunch and you have all these people in the same place in one room. (laughs) So if that is too much, you know, just generally another phrase or another move you need to just have at the ready is, I think I'll go be alone now. Or I forget where this came from, but just seems to make circles in, at the end of Opasana retreats, the phrase, I go now. It might have been coined by Stephen Armstrong. Anybody know? I go now. <laughs> I think maybe he came up with that first. It's like, okay, I've reached the tipping point. Any more input and my heart's going to start resisting. So I go now. Go somewhere quiet. Go somewhere alone. Go hide for a while. And that's okay. We don't need to um, feel like we're weird or we're just taking care of ourselves. And like I said, you know, our skin is a little thinner, so it's appropriate to take care of the instrument. Of course, after a while, that sensitivity, which is mostly the effect of Samadhi. Samadhi is a conditional state of mind, meaning it comes and goes according to supporting conditions. And whatever supporting conditions we set in motion during these nine days, it has, samadhi, it has that much momentum. And when that karmic force has been used up, samadhi begins to diminish. Back to the ordinary baseline state. And then you can have, you know, this is also part of the post-retreat retreat, retreat, the sort of post-retreat blues of feeling like whatever I had, I've lost. You know, I thought I had it. I thought it was the new me. And it was just a setup, you know. And we feel, I don't know, betrayed. So we remind ourselves now, insights have a lot more resonance, or have a lot more uh, long life, especially if they keep being renewed, than samadhi, which is more fragile, coming and going. But even the quality of calm and steadiness and inner happiness of samadhi, even that can shift up. So one of the nice things about retreat, and the reason people come back to retreats, is they want to, they say things like, recharge my practice. But what they really want is sort of up that baseline. So they up it on the retreat, and then they take advantage of that by upping their daily practice to sustain a higher baseline of samadhi as they go back in their life, until the events of our lives, responsibilities or such, conspire to make us lose our practice and then either we can build it right back up in daily life, or we take another retreat. And it's good to, you know, as you go home and settle in, not not in the first few days, or even first week, unless it's necessary. Well, it might be, because Common Ground's next retreat goes online, I think, on September 8th, which is Sunday, maybe? So, But anyway. But it's nice to punctuate the year with some retreats, So it's just, you're building in. This is just part of who I am. I do some residential retreats every year. That says, you know, that's right up there with all the other important things. That's just what I do. And in that light, you know, it's it's good because... Some things do get clear when we're on retreat. Someone asked this question, I think, at some point about figuring things out, rethinking things in life. And these uh, important parts of our lives, relationships, livelihood, whether to renovate the kitchen, you know, all these sort of relatively big things, we might get some clarity. But that doesn't mean we should act on anything in the first Days or even weeks. I mean, you don't need to forget the clarity that you had, but you might just want to hold off, let the dust settle, and see, just keep seeing if whatever seems so clear continues to seem clear. And don't force it. Because the real sign that something is clear is it makes sense in a lot of settings and from a lot of states of mind. It only, it isn't something that only makes sense from a particular State of mind. On the beach in Mexico, after a couple margaritas, I was so sure this was the right thing, you know. But in another setting, it doesn't make sense.
1: <laughs>
0: and it's, it's not so different here. It's not that we don't have clarity, but it should hold up to the test of time. It should make sense everywhere. And then we, then we act on it. So I want to offer some uh, ways to keep the practice alive once you get home. This is something I've been reflecting on a lot. I often share some of these ideas with uh, people at the end of the intro class. And they're also, not everybody, but a lot of them are in this place having just first heard, a number of them, first heard about these teachings. And gung-ho... And even during just a six-week course, having some sense of the value. And so like how to keep it alive when you go home. One thing to appreciate is, um, and it's just a really wholesome reflection, when you think about like even one day, And how many moments of practice there were in just one day, even given how often we were distracted, just lost in thought. But even so, how many real moments of practice, intentional moments of practice, the mind interested in opening and connecting and understanding the way it is. And each one of them is an actual seed of wisdom and mindfulness. And that some of you who've been practicing for decades or for years, then you just start to imagine how many seeds of wisdom, of patience, of love, of clarity, have been planted. And then, you know, you can continue this reflection. So that, that can seem very deep and wide, a huge karmic force. Intentions have a force. And as the Buddha says, you can't hide anywhere from these forces that could set in motion. This is true with both wholesome and unwholesome intentions that, that have been set in motion. They will have an effect. And then you add on top of that all of the beneficent beings, past, present, and future, who are wishing us well, who intentionally dedicate the goodness of their lives for the benefit of our awakening. And that's an intention, and that pecks a punch. So we want to have that sense going home you know not because it's so easy to feel a little helpless and naked and uh yeah out of out of the womb out of the supportive environment of the retreat and these teachings and the wholesomeness of the community so we have to in our own minds with our aspiration and our sense of refuge and the sense of this buddha dhamma you know this sāsana is the word, this uh, dispensation of the Buddha, which is a real force. We can't touch it. But because as practitioners we are beginning to appreciate the power of intention, that means that all of those intentions from before the Buddha, because there were Buddhas before the Buddha, all the innumerable beings, all of those intentions Have a force, like a sympathetic vibration that we are in practicing attuning to. So it's useful to imagine we're riding the wave of all the practitioners before us, and we are building the way for all the practitioners to come. And so when you, you know, if you create a little altar at home or whatever you do to support that reflection, that we're not alone, that this practice has momentum that we can't conceive of. The fact that we have gotten here is an expression of momentum, that there are people who have this interest, who have this opportunity. It's an expression of this momentum. I think I mentioned this quote from... uh, David, Henry David Thoreau, about seeds, the power of seeds. And I don't know if it was recently at this retreat, but uh, it might have been early in the retreat where I mentioned, you know, they find seeds that are, I don't know how many thousands of years old, but I think some seeds are at least tens of thousands years old and they'll still germinate. It's like an intention in the mind. It's pretty amazing. And so Henry David Thoreau said, Although I do not believe that a plant will spring up where there is no where no seed has been planted I have great faith in a seed convince me that you have a seed there and and I'm prepared to expect wonders And uh Gail Iverson a couple years ago was on the 6 week retreat at IMS she's one of Comegrounds teachers and leaders and also our bookkeeper now former board chair and uh she had she put together some um phrases that she would repeat every day on that retreat and here they are. I have faith that the seeds of liberation are present in all living beings, so it's really nice like when the person next to you is slamming the door or <laughs> has has body odor or you know took the last deviled egg and you wanted that deviled egg or something like that. And then you remember the seeds of liberation are within that person. <laughs> and then she goes on, therefore I have faith that the seeds of liberation are present in me. Right? Because if we can imagine, for a lot of us, it's easier to imagine in others. Yeah? And Then they must be present in me. How could I be the lone exception? That just doesn't make sense. Although there's a lot of evidence to support that view, because we see, you know, all the defilements, because we're good at seeing what's off. Therefore, I have faith that the seeds of liberation are in me. I have faith that the understanding of the Four Noble Truths and the practice of the Noble Eightfold Path leads to liberation, the end of suffering. I have faith that I am Uh, that I am, and we are practicing to the best of our abilities in this moment. Isn't that nice? So just some things to take home. The first is, I think this is the April retreat, I had this sort of theme that began with, like, what's the most important thing? And at the end of the retreat, it occurred to me, the most important thing is remembering the most important thing. <laughs> and I think that's a really, uh, noble aspiration. Practicing generally in daily life and going home from retreat, remembering the most important thing. And that, that actually is the most important thing. Keeping the practice in mind. You know, we talked a lot on this retreat about keeping the theme of the present moment in mind. How are we going to keep the theme of the present moment in mind? Well, we could be tuning into that objects are being known, or we could be tuning into the breath, or we could be tuning into the quality of the heart, kindness in the heart. There are many different ways, and one way is to keep the teachings in mind. Literally, some thread of the teaching can be a line. From the Buddha or from somebody. So I mentioned this earlier. Thich Nhat Hanh says, the only real enemy is forgetfulness. There's one story I like quite a bit. Before I, I mention that, just uh, some of you know that one of the first statements after the Buddha's awakening was something about faith. He says, Wide open are the gates to the deathless, deathless being freedom or nirvana. Let those who can listen bring forth their faith. Let those who are willing to listen, who have some interest in the nature of things, bring forth their confidence, their faith, that listening, paying attention, is good, is useful. Wide open are the gates to the deathless. Let those who can listen bring forth their faith. So this story is about Anatha Pindika who was the great uh, supporter, benefactor of the Buddha. And uh, he was a merchant, a very wealthy merchant, and he went uh, to another town to do some of his business, and he had relatives there, and he was showed up and normally they treated him with a lot of respect because he was a, you know, wealthy, generous, you know, senior family person. But they pretty much ignored him. And they were all busy. And uh, they were all talking about Buddha's coming for his meal tomorrow. Because they were going to provide the meal to the Buddha and the monks and nuns. And, uh, the heard the word Buddha. You know, Buddha isn't the Buddha's name, it's a title. One who is awakened. One who has awakened without the help of another. Another's teachings. And, uh, self-awakened, sometimes it's translated as. And so, he just couldn't believe he heard this. It was like, uh, woke some deep, something deep in his heart. And he couldn't sleep, just like, I remember as a kid before we go on vacation, you know, not being able to sleep. He got up, he got up, three times it said he got up. Finally he got up, he didn't carry, he was just going to go out to where the Buddha was, because of course the, they were outside of the town, they don't stay in the town, they stay out in the woods. So it's completely dark, and evidently he's frightened walking out alone in the dark, and he approaches where the Buddha is camping or staying, and He's out, the Buddha's out in the very early hours of the morning doing his walking meditation practice. And it's very interesting, you know, in the suttas, the Buddha just kept practicing. It's not like he stopped sitting and walking because he had uprooted greed, anger, and delusion in his mind. Why? Why would he do that? I mean, it seems like, well, it's a lot of work. Well, why is that more work than anything else? And the thing is, it's an act of generosity, for one. Just to keep modeling the practice for everybody else who really needs it. And, the more, uh, quiet the mind is, the more the mind appreciates what's not there. Greed, anger, and delusion. So it's a way of expressing gratitude and appreciation, I'm assuming. And, uh, just the beauty of a mind not afflicted with greed, anger, and delusion. Anyway, Anathapindaka was, you know, he's just beside himself, as you might imagine, uh, having been like something deeply stirred in him, and then this sort of culminating event where he's meeting this person and he realized that, you know, this is a fateful mo- moment, and he kind of wants to make a good impression, but he doesn't know what to say. So he says something like, How are you doing? <laughs> and uh and the Buddha gave this amazing answer. You know, he just didn't say, Fine. <laughs> he said Indeed the sage who is fully quenched rests at ease in every way. No sense desire adheres to him, whose fire fires have been cooled deprived of fuel, so fires of misperceiving or fires of reacting deprived of fuel. All attachments have been uh, severed, the heart's been led away from pain, tranquil he rests with utmost ease, the mind has found its way to peace. And it's great because the Buddha is talking about, talking about his personal experience in very psychological terms. I mean, these are terms we may not be able to realize directly, but all of that is understandable. You know, fully quenched, rests at ease in every way. That's, we have a sense. That's a very attractive picture he's painting. No sense desire adheres to him, whose fire have been cooled, deprived of fuel. All attachments have been severed. The heart's been led away from pain. Tranquil, he rests with utmost ease. The mind has found its way to peace. Nothing mystical or, you know, otherworldly about the description. I mean, clearly it's not a state we know how to realize or hang out in, but it's it's nothing um, magical or out there, which is really, I think, important because like in terms of remembering the most important thing, we have to have a sense of the goal or the refuge or the aspiration, even though we're not there yet, a sense of what might be possible, or if you have confidence, what is possible for this heart. Why not? Why not aspire to a heart that's fully quenched? Fires have been cooled. Why not? What would the harm be in that full aspiration, that aspiration for full, unshakable release of the heart? So it's important as we remember the most important thing and as we find a way to sustain this memory through the day because What is our biggest obstacle when we go back to daily life? It's all the mundane things that seem important, that aren't really that important, that we fill our lives with. And we pursue these things. I've often joked in the past, you know, I'm a little better now, but, you know, over the years, if I got an inkling for chocolate in the middle of the afternoon, it's like I would go way out of my way to get chocolate. You know, and the thing is, I knew that, you know, it would be just what it would, would be, you know, some pleasant taste in the mouth for some while. And then, actually, keeping, keeping on eating it, it wouldn't even be that pleasant, but you know, I got it, so, I wonder if this next piece, you no, know, how about one more? <laughs> no, I guess, I guess it's really not pleasant anymore. So we, we work so much for things that aren't that satisfying. And I think a lot of that is because we're not keeping in mind in a clear way what is possibly possible for this heart, this mind. So we have to work at it. This is part of our daily life work, is keeping the practice in mind, keeping the aspiration or the refuge in mind. We have to work at it creatively, like certain images, certain pithy phrases, Certain memories of our own insights and experience, they'll work for a while, but they'll fade. They'll, they get, I guess, overused after a while. And we have to regenerate our way back to the refuge, to what's, you know, this aspiration of what's possible.
1: So Mark, what did the guy say? When he got that it doesn't say. Oh,
0: well, he, he had first uh, level of enlightenment, Anathapindaka. First stage of awakening, Sotipana uh, stream entry, it's called, where the mind sees so deeply the underlying nature that it can't really forget it. And so it never really gets confused by selfing. Selfie may arise, does arise, greed and anger still arise, but upon looking at it, there's no confusion there. And they no longer think rites and rituals are going to lead to freedom. You know, being attached to certain ritual or certain forms or, you know, anything, you know, routines even. Doubt. Rituals and there's one more thing, one more fetter that leaves at the first stage of awakening. I forget what it is.
1: You must have lost it. <laughs> yeah. Personality? Hmm. Personality. personality? Yeah,
0: that, but I mentioned self-view. Okay. And uh rites and rituals, but it seems like there's a third. They are going out? to be
1: uh reaching nirvana within seven lifetimes.
0: Yeah, but that's not a fetter. But it, You said doubt. Oh yeah, doubt. Da- yeah, yeah, doubt. Yeah, doubt in the path. Doubt in the practice. Yeah. So yeah, those are the three. So so he and he became a lifelong supporter of the Buddha. That was the other sort of thing that came out of it. Um, there's a story. I think it was uh he wanted to buy a monastery, a a, a, a really nice park for them to for the disciples of the Buddha, the monastic disciples of the Buddha to stay, and I think a local prince owned it, and uh he said if you could, uh oh, he offered, he, you know, the prince was bargain, you know, really bargaining with him, so he offered to spread gold coins through the whole park to buy it, and actually he, he went broke, but he then regained his wealth. Hmm
1: not not believing in rituals has nothing to do with the practice because the practice is a lot of there's a lot of you know like walking and sitting um,
0: but attachment to that thinking if you just do walking and sitting uh, you're going to get somewhere that's not the practice. that's not the, yeah it's not about the form it's about a shift or a deepening of understanding yeah, that's the point of that that uh, shift, dropping attachment to rites and rituals. So the question to us, of course, is how are we going to remember the practice? How are we going to keep the most important thing in mind? Obviously, going to the center or a center, continuing your study is helpful. Gathering friends who practice, who are interested interested in the practice are helpful. Any clever things, you know, Wendy Morris got some dog tags with different pithy phrases. You know, you've probably heard me say, um, Ajahn Sumedho once asked Ajahn Buddha Dasa, this famous Thai master, that if he was stuck on a desert island, what would he bring? At least that's what I heard it was Ajahn Sumedho asked this question to, of him. And he said, I'd want a little medallion with the words, this is the way that it is to have with me. Just that reminder. Well, we can do that. That's what like Wendy did. She had little pithy phrases and she chose choose one every day to put on her chain to remember. Sometimes it was just the word equanimity. Sometimes it was a longer phrase. But you could, you know, we can put something in our pocket, a piece of paper with a little message and every time our hand goes in, we go, oh yeah, that's right. Things are the way that they are. This is just how it is right now. Can this be okay? So it can... Be anything. And then like I said, it has to be renewed. So that I'd recommend that you work on that and keep working on keeping the practice in mind so that like we talked about earlier in the retreat from the uh, elven queen having a light for the dark places. So how are we going to remember in the dark places? It has to be already established in the mind. It's too late to recall something that we haven't already established in the mind when life is confusing because there's a lot of pain or a lot of success or something's rocking the boat. Another thing to uh work on in daily life is, and you can think of this right now, but to think about certain places in your life that are challenging and choose one and practice shifting the view from this is a difficult place in my life to this is an important teacher in my life. So we 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 have to... Perception is a flexible thing. You know, we perceive things based on our previous conditioning. But we can change that condition. We can condition the mind to see certain people in our lives as teachers instead of pains in the butt. And then... It's like a a mindfulness bell will go off when we're around that difficult person. I have something to learn here. I'm going to learn how not to suffer when around this person. Or I'm going to learn how not to suffer when I'm in traffic. Or I'm going to learn how not to suffer when I do my taxes. But it's better to do something you do every week, at least once a week, if not several times a week. So think about what that might be, just the right thing, not the most intensely difficult thing in your life, but not something you almost have already mastered, something that's a worthy teacher for your degree of faith or confidence, some fear, some agitation, some old mental pattern that rearises, some kind of doubt or negative self-statement, that we can then, and now what has to happen is now and then regularly you have to resolve in the mind, because remember, intentions have a force. So you're feeding the intention by remembering the intention not to have a strategy when you're with that situation, that difficult person or whatever it is, but to show up With your practice. Clear, relaxed, fearless, not afraid to make mistakes because the mind is committed to being present, learning from any skillful response in that situation and equally learning from any unskillful response. So we're not like, okay, it's my teacher so I have to be skillful. No, the whole point is to let the conditioning of the mind reveal itself in the space of wise attention. So the mind can see the conditioning that's there and see what of that conditioning is unskillful and what of that conditioning is skillful. This is that middle stage, right? Where we're letting cause and effect, we're letting things come and go, and we're learning from it. This is how it's playing out. This is why it's playing out. I know because I'm just letting things play out cause and effect. Taking the role of being the one. And then I'll learn how to participate, like how paying attention to certain things shifts that way of it playing out. So, after getting burnt a number of times by getting lost in in defensiveness, the next time, naturally, wisdom tunes into defensiveness. It's tracking it all the way, knowing it's just causes and conditions, it's not personal. Knowing from previous experience that getting identified with the defensive, unpleasant feeling distorts the mind's perception. And the mind begins to see this person as an appropriate target for my anger or that it's appropriate to run from the situation or whatever it might be, that might be unskillful. So do you have an inkling of what might be a good place? Because you know how it is. We'll get swept away very soon and we won't think of this. And now, in these few seconds, make a very clear resolve that this is a suitable teacher. Maybe some of you read uh, Carlos Castaneda's books because he talks about this very poignantly, the petty tyrant. His teacher, Don Juan, whether actual or fictional, who knows, But nonetheless, a lot of wisdom in those books. His teacher told him to be grateful for the petty tyrants. Don't feel like, oh, can't wait, till this petty tyrant is gone. But to really appreciate that if there's anything in our life that really pushes our buttons without actually killing us, it's a teacher. It's just a question if we're up to the standards of this teacher or whether we have to postpone the lesson which means a lot of suffering and stress avoiding showing up for the lesson until we have enough confidence that I can learn from this teacher too. Death is a teacher, loss is a teacher. As I mentioned, even success can be a potent teacher. Being liked by people can be a potent teacher because it's not easy to bear, not easy to not get confused. Another thing, and I'll just mention this one briefly, that's really good because we won't have the retreat container and and the space and the relative absence of duties and responsibilities. We need to, in a more focused way, practice relaxation. So everybody has to find some activity, some part of the day, where you're gaining skill at relaxation putting down the load. And you can just start with dropping physical tension. And of course you can do this all day long and that would be great, but I recommend that you either lie down in savasana and do a lying down meditation where for that 10 or 15 minutes the intention in the mind is very simple. To lie down, notice how nice it feels to lie down in the middle of the day and concentrate on that nice feeling as a means of the body and mind letting go of whatever it can let go of. Preferably all the way to a few moments of deep sleep. This can happen in minutes once you've trained yourself and then you can bounce right out of deep sleep and into a refreshed state. And you learn a lot about the mind being able to drop everything in the middle of a busy day. So if you have your own office, you can shut the door. It's better to do it right in the middle of the swirl of the chaos. But otherwise you can do it when you come home or whatever, you know, whenever the suitable condition is. And if you can't lie down, just find a comfortable place to do it where you're relatively away from duties and responsibilities. If you've got kids, then make it a family affair. That everybody does this for this amount of time. And you know, you set the alarm and nobody can make a sound or move. I don't know if that actually works for kids.
1: I used to work with,
0: I used to, we did this, we did this. Even with especially at preschoolers I did this. It doesn't work very well, but we did it nonetheless every single time. And then for many years I taught elementary age kids and we did this. With a group of elementary age kids. So it is possible. And part of it is you just do it. You don't react. You just, it's like if your mind is resolved on doing this, eventually, well, you, did you, or is it Naomi who did it at Central? Yeah. Central High, which is, you know, inner city high school in St. Paul, Mimi and
1: in and was I mean, I mean, every get chatter, 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 sit down. But I don't say hello. I ring the bell, and a minute later, you know, ring it, and then. And what's the the nicest thing about that was that I never had to raise my voice to start class.
0: Yeah, so if you have family members and you don't have any other time, then if you can make it a family affair, and it doesn't just have to be that; it could be some activity. So you have to find your own way. For me. Lying down in savasana is my way. I do this almost every day, sometimes a couple times a day. I've been doing this almost every day for over 30 years now. And it really helps. It really helps. It's so simple. And it's pleasant. Why don't we do this? I really think it's a crime that this isn't taught starting in preschool all the way through graduate education. Really? And then there should be continuing ed for adults. <laughs> napping. On, on relaxing, yeah. Or napping if you want, but
1: yeah. So 15 minutes,
0: is that what yeah. Yeah, or whatever you have, but you know, at least five.
1: Is there a danger like you view it as an escape like you need to get to your nap before you can
0: Yeah, but that may be an appropriate uh concern to not being able to let go every day at least once, to put everything down to have a little alone time. Now, there may be times when it's just not possible, but you'll be surprised if you're creative, you will find times when it's possible. There are down times. Look out a window. I
1: think a bell is nice too. A little, a little meditation bell because it helps the dropping.
0: For some people, but other people, the ritualization makes it seem contrived. So you just have to find your own way. But some people like the decoration around it. It makes it more established routine. And other people, their personalities to re- react to that. You know, you set it up and then the rebel in them says, you can't make me do that.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> I have to just, it just arises in my mind. Oh, this would be a good time. And then I do it. And uh, I'll just do it anywhere. Wherever I am, I'll just do it.
1: There is an app you can get for your phone, it's called Insight Timer, and
0: it has the bells. And the but ideally, ideally, you would let the cycle play itself out. Just let the mind drop, and when it comes up, you go back into life. But it's not wrong to do that.
1: But. <laughs> Seriously?
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, but see, I. But also, you know, part of it is it's like uh we have to transform every day. I'll just this little diversion. I'll finish up here. Every day, I go through the eight precepts, and the last of the eight precepts, I take him up as trainings. He is not indulging in sleep, and I remind myself that sleep is not an escape. It doesn't, and being on retreat, and a lot of you I know experience this on retreat, where you see yourself thinking you should be sleeping, because either you have this expectation you need a certain number of hours to sleep, or you're tired of meditating. You don't want to practice anymore, but you're not sleepy, because the mind, it just wants to be alert. doesn't want to work at practice. That's not real practice anyway. It just wants to be naturally present but you want to go to sleep because you're done. And I've really seen over the years that is suffering. Making myself sleep, wanting to sleep. Because what happens is your mind will go to sleep. You will work hard at creating some sort of dreamlike state and fixating on it in order to be unconscious. But when you're done, you won't feel rested. You'll feel worse off. And if you're mindful when you come out of those sleep states, you'll know that that wasn't worth it. Now it takes a long time and I still at it to transform our relationship to sleep because it's a deep habit to escape through sleep but I recommend that you begin to work with it that you you really resolve like when you go to bed at night to use sleep as medicine honey take as much as you need as long as I don't get fired you know take as much as you need but don't assume anything Don't assume how much you need. The body knows how much it needs. It will wake up. So in the tradition, the Buddhist tradition, there's a real ethic about when you wake up, get up. Why do you think you woke up? I mean, it's one thing if something stirred you, but when you naturally wake up, what do you think the mind and body is saying? (laughs) Besides, I've got to go pee. For those getting a little older, (laughs) this is a common thing. But... You'll get a sense of like, oh yeah, the mind is ready. And then the question is, are you going to follow nature or are you going to follow your ideas about things? And this is the basic cause of dukkha. Following our ideas about things instead of following the nature of things. Thinking that I, the cognitive process, the way the mind's been conditioned knows better. Our conditioning is only as wise as it is. And you know, when you think about the culture that has conditioned this mind of ours, (laughs) leave it to Beaver, you know, branded. (laughs) Some of you are that was too that was too recent for me. My younger brothers and sisters were watching the Brady Bunch. (laughs) But yeah, these 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 are the this is the culture that programmed this mind. And uh then you get this. So that leads to the last thing, which is a sense of humor, right? So it's really important, you know. Sense of humor. There's a lot of wisdom in humor, and a lot of love in humor. Uh, Not all humor, obviously. Some humor is real hateful, actually, and bitter. But there's a lot of love and lightness, and uh, like I read, I think it was last night about this common statement that uh, practitioners would say after hearing a talk from the buddha as if you have as if what was overturned gets turned right up again what was confusing is no longer confusing and humor has a way of throwing light on things laughing at the defilements not that we're laughing at how potent they are how much intelligence they have how sticky they are with each other is really helpful. That's why it's so cathartic, the closing circle often on retreats and people or the small groups, people talking in very poignant ways and the laughing and the kind of belly laughs are so healing because we realize this is how it is. It's both serious, some vega, right? The spiritual urgency and it's already okay. And that's just the predicament. It's like hell is real but it's self-created. Liberation is real. It's putting down notions of hell and the causes of hell. Both are real. And it really depends on sort of how the mind is holding, relating to this thing we call mind and body. So I'll just read uh, a couple things. One is from Ramakrishna, this great Indian saint from the 1800s. I might have mentioned him on this retreat, but I mentioned him frequently. He's he was a big influence in my early years of practice. There's this great little book called The Gospel according to Ramakrishna. And uh he was just this high voltage spiritual person and uh uh illiterate. And his family were devotees of I forget if it's Durga or Kali, this very fierce manifestation of the divine feminine. Form of the divine, blood in her teeth and skulls and just, and Beta could merge with this archetypal image and became this magnetically, uh, attractive. People just sought him out. And because he, he just, uh, the love, this union of him with this archetypal. Do you know about Ramakrishna? Was it Durga or Kali? Kali? Kali. And, uh, yeah, so, but, uh, many things happened because of Ramakrishna. He, he sort of set in motion just this explosion of Dharma, real, real Dharma, but not from the Buddhist tradition. And, uh, both in India, but also here in the United States, because one of his main disciples, uh, Swami, uh, Vive, Vivekananda, came to the States, uh, the, sort of convention of religions, universal religions or something in Chicago in like eighteen ninety six or something like that. What was it? Eighteen fifty nine. Was it fifty nine? Oh I don't think so. I think, 1886 or I think it was close to the end of the century. Yeah. But anyway, and then he established some centuries that still exist around the country. And um but anyway, the one line I wanted to share was Ramakrishna was asked, "Why is there evil in the world?" And he said, "To thicken the plot.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Which is good to have uh, <laughs> because it looks so real when you look at you know the injustices and the stickiness of our cultural conditioning and the fear of difference and things like global warming and consumerism. And feeling safer when we have more. And all the ways we feel so justified in hating ourselves and thinking bad things about ourselves. And to have that view that these things that are very painful, that they're not what they appear to be. And this is what I like about some of these uh, very rich spiritual traditions. Like, uh, Hinduism and, and Tibetan Buddhism and Catholicism too, to some degrees, is that they're not afraid to play with very graphic images. I mean, just think about, it. I grew up as a Catholic. How many hours I spent gazing at the cross with somebody with nails to their palms and blood dripping. Crucifixion was the main symbol, symbol of transcendence. Now that's interesting. so to hold that like what is what's going on with that it wasn't just it's not just delusion these things aren't delusion they're telling us that things aren't what they appear to be it isn't what it seems and that's a real important lesson
1: Uh, I I don't want to talk about
0: Catholicism right now I don't want to talk about Catholicism no I
1: don't know I, I, that's not what I mean. I'm, oh, I'm sorry. saying you said that those things that tell us that things are not what they seem. I'm not making that connection. I don't
0: understand. Right, but why, why, like Ramakrishna for example, devotee of this fierce expression of, you know, the feminine energy, yet so radiantly happy and alive and loving. Or devoted Catholics, you know, who manifesting really saintly qualities, as some do, who are worshipping the image of somebody being crucified. So, it's, or some Vega, you know, or all the different ways in this tradition we bring to mind, I mean, hells, for example and being able, you know, the... Oh, yeah, there's just so many in uh, contemplating the decomposition of the body. <laughs> there are many. But I remember, I have to say, one of the brightest lights I've run across is this Sister Dipakara, a Burmese nun, this amazing woman. And uh, as a young girl, she just started seeing skeletons, probably from a previous life, who knows, a concentration object. and But for her... It was, you know, just brought up such powerful delight and absorption. And uh, so, how do we hold all that with a sense of humor, with a sense of mystery, and and I think the takeaway is we don't know everything, and it's good to hold things with an open mind, or to view things, or to relate to things with a really open mind, a lot of humility. So I'll just end with this quote from Havis. Some of you have heard this before. Tripping over joy. What is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God, a sublime chess game with God. And that the beloved has made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas you, my dear, I'm afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. (laughs) So, let's just take some time to let go of the words. So in a relaxed way, we'll give ourselves to this basic interest in the mind, what's being known in a relaxed way. This is the time to understand how to practice in daily life, because now so much is going to be moving in our minds, just like it is in daily life.